The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. If you don't yet love the Holy Trinity, I think this is your Sunday. John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Justin Curtis. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. I have the joy of filling in for Pastor Bob Thune this morning, who in about an hour will be jumping on a plane and flying to D.C., Uh, There'll be more updates in terms of what he's got going on ministry-wise there and ways you can be praying for him in the weekly update. So if you're not signed up for the weekly update, sign up for that and join us in praying for uh, what's going on there in D.C. this next week. Hey, if you're newer to Coram Deo, we have been walking through the Gospel of John since August of last year. Uh, When I first heard a little over a year ago that we were going to be going through John, uh, I was immediately thrilled, excited for what we're going to experience this next month. That these final weeks of Lent, as we head towards Easter, that we would be concluding the farewell discourse this morning. Uh, We're gonna be looking at the betrayal and arrest of Jesus next week. We'll be looking at the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus the week before Easter, and then in God's good providence on Easter Sunday, we'll be looking at the resurrection of Jesus. So, as a new Christian, about 16 years ago now, Um, I remember walking through these events as a believer and just having my my heart encouraged, my soul strengthened by looking at these events. And uh, over the last 16 years, as this season comes, just being reminded of the good news of the gospel for sinners and sufferers is... um, Man, it's a special season. So I'm jealous for us to be in the room together uh, the next few weeks. Uh, If you prioritize any time of the year, let these next few weeks be be weeks where we gather and celebrate the gospel. For those of you who are planners, 
Uh, Easter Sunday, just so you know, trying to schedule your brunch. Three services, okay? Uh, we're going to have a service at 8 o'clock in the morning, 9.30 in the morning, and 11 o'clock in the morning on Easter Sunday. So three services. They'll be a little shorter, full of a lot of energy. Um, we will have Quorumdale kids serving uh, children ages 0 through 5 at the first two services. The 11 o'clock service, there will be no kids ministry. So plan accordingly for that, all right? Uh, if you haven't done so yet, open your Bibles to John 17, if you could. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath your seat. Uh, we'll be on page 849. Since chapter 13 in John, we've been working through the farewell discourse. Jesus is with his closest disciples, right? The 12 who have now come down to be 11 because Judas has gone to be Judas. And Jesus is preparing them for what is about to unfold. And he concludes his teaching at the end of chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, verse 1, he says this. The text says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus transitions from teaching to praying. And last week, uh, Pastor Bob preached the first half of the high priestly prayer. I encourage you to go back to list and listen to that if you missed it. This week, we pick up in verse 20, where Jesus continues to pray, and he says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So consider this. Nearly 2,000 years ago, just hours before his death, Jesus prayed for you and for me. Let that sink in. With all that was going on around him, with all that he knew that he was walking into, he prioritized us. And he prayed for you and for me, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed for us. So that brings us then to the two questions that I think we need to address this morning. One, what did Jesus pray for? And two, how do we pursue it? What did Jesus pray for? And how do we pursue it? Those are the two questions. Let's get after it. Might even get out of here a little early. Here we go. John 17, picking up in verse 21. What did Jesus pray for? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What did Jesus pray for? Jesus prayed that we would be one, perfectly one, in communion and in mission. See, our, as Christians, our understanding of ultimate reality always starts with God, right? One true God in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who existed together before the foundation of the world in shared glory and in shared love. Perfect communion. Perfect union, perfect 
unity. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said as he described just the, the inner workings of the Trinity in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, Christians believe that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost kind of a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Theologian Cornelius Plantiga develops this even further, speaking to how the Bible talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit glorifying one another. He says this, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being, in constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life overflows with regard for others. Do you think of God this way? Right? Do you think of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as selfless, as others-centered, as glorifying each other before the foundation of the world. This is the nature and the character of God. God the Father glorifying and loving God the Son and God the Spirit. God the Son loving and glorifying the Spirit and the Father. The Spirit giving glory and love to the Son and the Father. And in Genesis 1, 28, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, we, receive, we see that we were made to be a part of this dance, as C.S. Lewis would describe. One of my favorite seminary professors uh, was Scotty Smith. Uh, he planted and pastored a church in Nashville, Tennessee for a number of years. Still to this day, uh, randomly, uh, almost every week, will text me just words of encouragement. Um, and he would love to talk about the lyric, the music, and the dance of the gospel. He would say that the gospel is like a great song. It has a lyric to be known, a theology, a music to be loved, doxology, and a dance to be learned, kingdom living. The gospel, he would say, calls for informed minds, inflamed hearts, and engaged feet. You were made for this type of communion with God. You were made to enter into the divine dance of the Trinity. It's as if God is saying, if you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in and of myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you were made for. This is what Jesus prayed for, that you would have union with God in the Trinity. And that communion with God informs 
and becomes the pattern of how we relate to one another as the people of God. Again, we heard it read, Jesus prayed for us to be one, perfectly one. Other translations will say completely unified in communion with God and with one another. That we would love one another, that we would serve one another, that we would defer to one another, care for one another, as if we were all part of one body or of one household or one family. Or as my gospel community described earlier this week, that we would know one another and be known by one another. Now, if I may, for a moment, step on some toes, my concern for you is this. If you've, if you've stuck around Quorum Day long enough, you know that um, we care about community, right? It's what we say up front in our liturgy almost every week, that God made you to, to live in community. It's what you were made for. So my guess is that you are uh, caught up and bought into that idea, but I'm afraid that there are some here that when push comes to shove, we like the idea of oneness more than we like actual oneness. That you like the vision of unity in the abstract more than you like actual unity. That the idea of really truly being known by others sounds great until it gets to the part of your life that you don't want other people to know. See, community on your own terms may be what the, the, communion, the culture that we live in is, is telling you, is, is trying to sell you, but that's not what Jesus is praying for in John 17. He isn't praying that we'd be perfectly one and experience complete unity in theory or in the abstract. He's praying that it would be actualized. That we would, as God's people, experience oneness as a real sharing of ourselves with others. Being known in community, being honest about our shortcomings and our heartaches and our struggles. Living into the type of honesty with one another that is made possible in the gospel. And when this type of unity is actualized, it's a beautiful and compelling testimony of the gospel. In other words, a unified church is a God-given visual aid for the world. Real Christian unity is evidence that the world, to the world, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus was who he says he was. It puts on display the redemptive and relational beauty of the gospel. I mean, look again at, at what we read. It says that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that we may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Listen, it's often not enough for people just to hear the gospel. They need to see how the gospel changes people. They need to see in a real but imperfect way what life in the kingdom of God looks like. There is a strong correlation between us being one in communion and us being one in mission. The most effective mission 
takes place when people both hear the gospel proclaimed by faithful disciples and see it lived out together in vibrant community. Right? This is why your non-Christian neighbors and coworkers often seem more open to the gospel once they've actually seen it lived out in healthy community. Stories like this are playing out month after month in this church, in this community. This, this is the way that 16 years ago the Lord brought me to himself, was that I heard through a coworker the gospel proclaimed, and I was invited into a community of people to see it lived out. And those two things working hand in hand, God used to call me to himself. And my guess is, is if you just reflect for a moment on your own story, the same thing is true. That you through someone, somehow, heard the gospel proclaimed and it really came to life when you got to see it lived out amongst a people. Jesus prayed for you and I that we would be perfectly one in communion and one in mission with God and with one another. So let me ask, have you experienced this unity among brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you experienced it? Or are you guilty of liking the idea of oneness more than actual oneness? That brings us to the second question that we need to consider, because if Jesus prayed for us, for you and me, to be perfectly one, to experience complete unity with one another, that means it's possible. Jesus would not pray for something that is not possible. So it's possible. The question then we must ask is, how do we pursue it? How do we pursue it? Do you realize, I'm sure you do, that there are dozens of one another's in the Bible that instruct us as to how we should relate to one another as God's redeemed and relationally beautiful people. Here's a short list of the many. Mark 9:50, be at peace with one another. John 13:14, wash one another's feet. John 13:34, and then on repeat basically all throughout John's writings, love one another. 1 Corinthians 12:25, have equal concern for one another. Ephesians 4:32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Romans 15:14, instruct one another. Colossians 3:13, Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. James 5, 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. 1 Peter 3, 8, live in harmony with one another. Now, can we all together just acknowledge that these one another statements are actually insufficient to try to create the type of oneness and unity that Jesus prayed for? I mean, honestly, this is elementary level ethics that any second grader here in the room knows and understands that we should treat one another in this way. It's not as though you come across these passages and you're like, oh, wow, I had no idea. We're supposed to be kind to one another. We're supposed to serve one another. This is blowing my mind. No, we know these things to be true and we've known these things to be true since we were this big. And yet, the church is still filled with relational conflict, with lack of forgiveness, with avoidance, with hurt. And the church 
is not immune to having issues like politics and race and preferences on how we should raise and educate our children and preferences on how we should handle a global pandemic, issues like these from entering into the body of Christ and creating real division among us. So it seems like a white-knuckled approach, I'm going to do this, I'm going to work hard at this, is insufficient to bring about the type of unity that Jesus is calling us into. And don't get me wrong, I would love nothing more than to be able to stand up here and just tell you, love one another, be nice to one another, and walk out of here and you guys just come together and be this perfect picture of the body of Christ. But that is insufficient. So what is sufficient? What actually will make us into a unified, redeemed, relationally beautiful people? Well, it's the power that we see in this prayer. It's the power that flows from faith in our union with Christ. Faith that in the gospel you are united with Christ, that Christ is in you and that you are in Christ. Our union with Christ brings a unity in Christ that transcends all secondary arguments. Rankin Wilborn wrote a wonderful book, Union with Christ. If you have not read it, we don't have it on the resource table, but you should get it. It's amazing. He says this, nothing is more basic or more central to the Christian life than union with Christ. Our neglect of union with Christ explains the gap between our faith and our lives. When the work of Christ for us becomes abstracted from the person of Christ within us, is it any wonder there is a chasm between our heads and our hearts or between our beliefs and our experiences? Look again at verse 21. Jesus prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus fulfills this prayer in the gospel. And union with Christ means you are in Christ. To be in Christ means you are represented by Christ. As a Christian, you share in Christ's life and obedience, his death and his resurrection. He is your representative and you are clothed in his righteousness. My older brother spent a few years teaching and being an administrator at Omaha South High School. Uh, A handful of years ago, he borrowed the school's mascot costume for Halloween, and he walked around the neighborhood as Benny the Bull, and the kids loved it. Stepped into it, it was like an inflatable sort of deal, so he got stepped into it and kind of put his arms in, and somebody had to come up behind and just kind of zip, zip the whole thing closed, and man, as he walked around the neighborhood on Halloween, he was accepted, he was loved, he was appreciated, he was valued by others because he was hidden in Benny the Bull's righteousness. 
Huh? Huh? Wow. I borrowed that illustration from Rankin-Wilborn, but this is a small glimpse of what it means for the people of God to be in Christ. You are completely safe, loved, accepted, valued, hidden in him. He represents you before the Father, and he represents you before one another. There is no need for pretending or performing. There is no need for comparing or judging one another because as Christians, we are all unified in the fact that we are wrapped, covered, clothed, and hidden in all of Christ's benefits, blessings, and righteousness. This defines God's people. As you look around the room, this is what defines you. This is why even at work, you feel a sense of compatibility with that Christian coworker. This is why you are drawn to your Christian family members when you show up to the summer family reunion. This is why you can get on a plane and fly to a completely different country with a completely different culture, and when you step off that plane and you start running into Christians, you feel a sense of family. It's because you are one in Christ. So union with Christ means that you are in Christ. But union with Christ also means that Christ is in you. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. To be united to Christ is to have the spirit of Christ within you. And that spirit in you now guides and forms you more and more into those who are completely unified in Christ. One way that the Spirit does this is by taking the one another's of scriptures and moving them out of, a, out of the category of being a list of things you should do and into the category of things that you desire to do empowered by the Holy Spirit. Again, Rankin-Wilborn. Consider two superheroes, Batman and Spider-Man. Finally got your attention. Batman is a rich and strong man with lots of cool gadgets. His superpowers stem from his external possessions. Spider-Man has a few accessories as well, but he is a superhero because of the spider powers he obtained when he was bitten by a radioactive spider. His nature has been changed. He now has a new power accessible to him, within him. Christ in you makes you more like Spider-Man than Batman. Something alien to you from outside of you has entered into you and changed your nature. You now have a power that you did not have before. The trouble with this analogy, and there should be one, is that Spider-Man became something more than human 
while we instead are being restored to our full humanity, we are becoming more like Christ. So hear me. In Christ, like in the Benny the Bull costume, you are loved and accepted and secure as you're hidden in him. And Christ in you, by his spirit, dwells and gives you a new life and a new power to pursue complete and perfect unity. Our union with Christ brings about our unity in Christ. So here's the final question to consider. Where right now are you not fully experiencing unity in Christ? Where are you right now not fully experiencing unity in Christ? In any place you lack fellowship, unity, true communion with other people, you need to ask the question, how am I ignoring? How am I not living in light of? How am I failing to believe in union with Christ? You see, in the places where you are not experiencing unity in Christ, the invitation is not to try harder. The invitation is to repentance and faith. We pursue unity in Christ first by humbling ourselves before God in repentance, acknowledging where we are failing to believe in our own personal union with Christ and acknowledging where we're failing to believe that others and those around us are united with Christ. We start by naming the ways we are failing to live into this true reality and then joyfully we begin to move towards one another by faith. Believing by faith that not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us, empowering us to pursue unity and oneness. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not good news that you get to try again and try harder. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that by grace and through faith, we can humble ourselves before God in repentance and believe in the truths of the gospel right here and right now. And by faith, pursue the real and genuine unity and oneness that Jesus himself prayed that we would experience right before he went to the cross, nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's not live in theory. If Jesus prayed for us to be perfectly one, it's possible. And you can pursue unity in Christ this morning through repentance and faith. 
and specifically by faith in our collective union with Christ. So let's pray together that the Spirit would move us in that direction. Lord Jesus, we follow your lead and we pray for our unity as your people. May we be one just as you and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. May we be perfectly one so that the world may know that you were sent by the Father and that God the Father loves us as he loves you. Jesus, Prince of Peace, we thank you for praying for our unity. And we thank you for uniting us to yourself in the gospel. We are in you and you are in us. Would you convict us of the places where we struggle to fail to believe this truth? Help us to receive and believe this good news of our union with Christ by faith. And empower us by your spirit to walk in unity in such a way that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Protect us from the enemy who seeks to kill and destroy what you have bought with your precious blood. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.